Hello, I'm your host, Isaac Kaplan. This week on the Artsy Podcast, something a little special. On Wednesday, Artsy's executive editor, Alexander Forbes, sat down with former Met director Thomas Campbell, who resigned at the end of February after an eight-year tenure in the Post. On the heels of his final day at the Met, which was just last Friday, Campbell discussed the institution's ongoing deficit, the controversial rebranding, and his own legacy. So without further ado, here's the show. Thank you, Tom, for joining me today at RTHQ. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, there's so much I'd like to get through, so if you don't mind, I think we'll just dive right in. Sure. You know, looking back at some of the statements you've made leading up to your departure from the Met, which I guess was just two, two or three days ago at this point, your official. I finished last on day. July the 14th. Yeah. July the 14th, so it's it's fresh. You know, I know you you've said that various portions of the narrative that played out has been accurate or not accurate to your degree, and that. Um, you know, you hope that in, in some amount of time, a larger narrative could come out uh, about about your tenure there and, and the circumstances around your departure. So I was curious, obviously, there's been no shortage of coverage around the Mets trials and tribulations over the past six months, which I think we'll link to in the article that accompanies this podcast for listeners. But from your perspective, what were some of the less accurate portions of the coverage? And why did you resign? And what is kind of a larger narrative that you hope that might emerge uh, over time? I think that um, you know we had quite a turbulent year last year. Like like many businesses, uh, we were going through a financial restructuring just to make sure that our you know income was balanced with our expenditures, and it generated quite a lot of agitation inside and outside the museum that was portrayed in some of the media as being you know a, a major crisis. The reality is that the, the Met has a three billion dollar endowment. It has a AAA rating. It has one of the most generous donor bases of any cultural institution in the world. So the work we were doing was being done from a position of great strength, and the institution remains very strong in every sense. So I think that as the dust settles, people will be able to see again how you know, amazing the Met is. On every metric, we're in a very strong place. We've just broken an audience of 7 million uh, we've grown our audience by 40% over the last eight years, I think, which is faster than any peer institution anywhere in the world. The quality of our program is, you know, the envy of the world. So, you know, we're, we're firing on all cylinders. And I think that is the story that will emerge. Yeah, it was exciting to see earlier this week the, the 7 million number and that I think it was the, the most visited tourist attraction in all of New York last year. You've repeated in a number of interviews that the Met is on a pathway to financial stability and prosperity in the long term. Is there any detail to which you can get into the, the underpinnings of that claim and, and how you see that path uh, kind of emerging out of this tumultuous year? Uh, you know, the Met's a big, big business. We're a sort of 350, 60 million dollar gross business, 320 million net. Uh, our income comes from multiple different sources and our expenditures are, are considerable. One of the challenges we've been facing in recent years is that we have a, a high internal inflationary pressure because about 65 to 70% of our budget goes on salaries and benefits and we have a constant incremental 2 to 3% increase in that every year. While at the same time, 
some of our revenue streams were being impacted. For various reasons, our admissions stream was weakening. In order to deal with deferred maintenance, we had uh, taken out a bond issue for $250 million back in early 2015. So we had additional debt repayment. Uh, another incremental factor was that the because the actuarial projections were changed, by law we had to start putting more money aside for pensions. Many institutions across the country are facing similar circumstances. So we had a, a combination of factors uh, that were increasing our expenditures while our revenues were weakening. And what we were doing was essentially good housekeeping. We were trimming our costs trying to reduce the headcount to a certain extent, uh, looking carefully at our priorities. But it was, you know, it's business. And we're well on track to having a comprehensive, balanced, sustainable budget over the next two to three years. One of the major public-facing blows that I think a lot of people in, in New York noticed was the indefinite pushing off of building the $600 million contemporary wing to what extent did the impact of, of these perhaps gaps between the mandate that you were given coming in to vastly expand contemporary and modern art as part of the Mets program and the realities of funding around that initiative impact this larger picture? Again, I, I think that the story has been somewhat simplified in the press, and perhaps I'm also a victim of some of my, my own overly optimistic projections, you know, five or six years ago. The, the situation is that back in 2012 to 2013, we undertook a feasibility study of the whole building. Uh, we looked at infrastructure needs, deferred maintenance, and we looked at future elective projects transformative projects that would really enhance the Met's offering to its public. And out of that study came a very realistic understanding of some very urgent needs, areas of roofs that need to be replaced, plant, and so on. In particular, the need to re-roof the area over our European paintings galleries. So that was a one subject that then led into a kind of deep dive analysis that came to completion at the end of 2016. At the same time, along on the elective projects, the project that seemed to the leadership and to the board the highest priority back in 2014 was the opportunity of rebuilding the southwest corner of the museum which houses our modern and contemporary collections, but also has a num number of other functions. It's where we have the roof garden, restaurants, boardroom, and so on. So that too, that led into a deeper dive analysis. We did an architectural competition. Uh, we ended up selecting the British architect, David Chipperfield. And we then worked with David on a very exciting sort of year and a half, two-year process as we developed a schematic design for that project. There's no question that if we embark on it, it will be very expensive. And um, those two, the, the infrastructure project and the modern wing vision, both came to fruition at the end of last year. And by the time we, we had completed these two analyses, it was clear that we couldn't do both at the same time. I think originally I had thought both they might overlap, they might be run in conjunction, but it was quite clear that the 
scale of the infrastructure project is so enormous that that will be standalone, just as the rebuilding of the Southwest Wing. So we had to make a call, uh, which was the higher priority. And you know, I think it was clear to all of us that ensuring the integrity of the existing building, protecting the existing collections, has to be the priority especially insofar as we had done a $250 million bond issue. So we had the money in hand to move forward with that project. The decision to put the Southwest Wing project on, on pause has been, you know, there's been a lot of speculation. What does this mean? I think that we have a very exciting vision for what can happen with that Southwest corner. And my successor and the board will now have the time to you know, really think carefully about what is the appetite, how, you know, how much are they prepared to invest in that venture. There is no question that for the, I think for the growth and the future health of the Metropolitan, you know, that is a part of the museum that has to be redeveloped. You know, this all has to be looked at in the context of uh, an institution that is 147, 148 years old. We've we've been under almost permanent construction since the the building was set up in Central Park in 1880. And, you know, you have to take a longer term perspective on this. It's been exciting to see the activities in the Met Breuer in the meantime, since my understanding that the Met Breuer is actually bringing in a, a larger audience than the Whitney was at the same location, which is also kind of an interesting thing, given the backdrop of some of the difficulties around getting funding around these things. And clearly the Perry James Marshall show, I mean, personally, it was one of my favorite exhibitions I've seen in the last five years, which is breathtaking it's show. Great, great show. But I wanted to ask, you know, one question that I think I've, I've heard a lot and was written in the Times in, in one of uh, Robin Pogreven's early articles in, in a bit of a rhetorical way, but I, I think it, it warrants Getting your perspective is, uh, she writes, why try to compete with the new Whitney Museum of American Art and the Museum of Modern Art, some ask, instead of sticking to what the Met already does best? It's a really good, it's a really good question. It's a very important question. I think we're not out to compete with MoMA or the Whitney or the Guggenheim. You have to take a step back. When the Met was founded, it was founded as an encyclopedic museum to collect everything from antiquity through to the present day. And for the first 40 years of the Met's existence, modern art was the Hudson River School, and contemporary was Sargent and Whistler and William Merritt Chase. And the Met collected quite aggressively in those areas. And thank God it did, because those are now some of the strengths of our collection. But the Met famously pulled back from collecting contemporary in the early 20th century because the art that was coming out of Europe, Cubism, Fauvism, and so on, was just too radical for the tastes of the board and the curators of the time. That said, despite brave efforts by curators like Roger Fry, who felt we should be collecting, there was a hiatus of 20, 25 years, in which time MoMA was created, the Whitney was created, the Guggenheim was created. But by the 1930s and early 40s, it was becoming clear again to staff at the Met that many of them felt we should be collecting contemporary, not to compete, 
but because it was part of the longer narrative that the Metropolitan was charged with telling. If you look back, you know, read authors like Calvin Tompkins, Merchants and Masterpieces, you see the effort that the museum began to make in the 1950s and the 1960s to re-engage. And you know, famously, Henry Geldzala in the 1960s under Tom Hoving brought a whole new effort to collecting and displaying modern art at the Met. That continued, not, not, not turbocharged, but it continued under Philippe de Montebello. And you know, we built up uh, you know, a, a, a meaningful collection but it's, it's patchy, it's spotty. And by the time I became director, I think it was very clear to the board and to the leadership that our audience was really, they wanted to see a more consistent approach to modern and contemporary in the context of our global and historical collections. When you came in, how did you decide to start shaping that narrative? When I was appointed director, I had a number of very clear briefs from the board. One of them was to expand our engagement with modern and contemporary. That involved expanding the department, finding a platform for more exhibitions, more activity. And my appointment and that charge coincided with the approach that we had had from the Whitney uh, to find out whether we would be interested in taking over their building when they moved downtown. It seemed like a very exciting opportunity for us to expand our programming, custom-made, modern art space. So we thought hard about it. It took two or three years to really analyze the, the opportunities, the costs, but that was the exciting opportunity. And the Met Breuer is the, the end result of that. It was interesting when you were appointed the great excitement around having a, a curator take on this role and at a time when museum directorships were ever more heading towards, you know, a kind of more financier or manager type. And I wondered how it was stepping into such a complex institution one with so many different, um, I'm sure, competing interests. And you know, I'm sure everybody wants to put on a landmark show every year. What was your approach to trying to make those tough decisions and, and managing such a vast staff, I think over 2,000 or 2,500 employees? It's certainly, you know, it's, it, the Met is quite a, um, a political place, and that's not a bad thing. You know, it keeps you on your toes. You have 17 curatorial departments, all to an extent competing for a slice of the same resources. And so I tried hard during my tenure to find the right balance. You know, there might be a contemporary art show, but there was also an exhibition about ancient Greece or an exhibition about the Islamic world or an exhibition about the Middle Ages. So I've always been trying to find a balance. That said, you know, I had a clear mandate to expand the modern and contemporary program. So I was putting resources there. Under the leadership of Gary Tintero, the previous department head, a number of new initiatives had already been taken. For example, expanding the roof garden program or bringing a number of higher profile exhibitions into the pipeline. When Gary went to Houston to run the museum there, I brought in Sheena Wagstaff, who'd been number two to Nick Sorota at the Tate. And with Sheena, we, we worked hard to vision a future program, to evolve a collecting program, and to expand the staff of her department. 
that sort of activity, you know, inevitably in a competitive institution like the Met, you know, it breeds rivalry and a lot of chatter. But I believed and I continue to believe that that is uh, an important investment both in the original vision of the Met and in its future vitality. I think if you stop collecting, uh, you, you run the danger of becoming, sort of getting a feeling of a dusty institution. That's In a sense, that's what the, the Met was fighting against back in the 1950s, the 1960s. Was there ever a time when you sat down and said, gosh, if I'd only gotten an MBA rather than studying tapestries, it, this might be a lot easier? <laughs> um, it's a complex place. And you know, I was very dependent on the advice and support I had. And as the years have gone by, you know, I clearly, I was learning fast, rapidly on the job. I had very good, I was fortunate to become the director uh, when Emily Rafferty uh, was the president. She had been at the museum for a long time, had great experience, very experienced staff under her. So I had the opportunity to kind of come up to speed. And then as the years have gone by, I did my best to bring in strong people who would give me good advice. And, you know, obviously when Emily retired, I worked very closely with the board to uh, choose her successor, Dan Weiss. And it was with Dan, in fact, that I worked very closely on this whole financial restructuring that we were talking about just now. One of the departments that you invested in heavily and tried to really champion as a way forward to the Met, um, but also which has drawn some of the greatest scrutiny in, in the past months is the digital department. I was wondering if you could kind of outline your high-level strategy and particular initiatives that you thought were um, successful in the Met's expansion into the digital realm. Sure. Again, uh, when I was appointed director, I was given a very clear mandate by the board to expand our digital activity. It was clearly the zeitgeist. You know, the, the iPhone was invented in 2007 and was just one manifestation of the many innovations that were being made in that sector. So I think I saw it as a very exciting moment for us to use the digital realm to expand our audiences and to reach out, you know, not just locally, but nationally and internationally. I think we've had really a kind of a three-pronged strategy. One has been to get the collections online. When I became director, there were something like 23 different databases across the museum, some of which had been very inadequately populated with information. They didn't speak to one another. In many respects, they conflicted. So we amalgamated all of those resources into a single collections database and huge progress has been made in getting those collections online. A second leg of the strategy was to create cross-department publications that would give different audiences different points of engagement with, with the collections. My predecessor had started something called the Timeline of Art History, which was a sort of a history of art told through the lens of our collections sort of precursor in a way of the BM's history of the world and a hundred objects, except we were doing it with thousands of objects. And that has always been a, for me, a centerpiece of our cross collection strategy. And we've in fact now 
invested in that very considerably and relaunched it twice in the last eight years. But we also created other points of contact, um, for example, a series called The Artists Project, where we got artists to talk about works that were meaningful to them. Um, another series called Met Kids, where we had kids interviewing members of staff and you know, obviously aimed at an audience of teenagers. The, th the third leg of the strategy um, evolved under head of the department called Sri Srinivasan, who really brought fresh thinking to our social media engagement and got the Met and its staff really thinking about Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, blogs, and so on, again, as ways of reaching out, finding new points of entry, new footholds for different audiences. And what's been amazing to me is that some of our crustier, uh, crustiest uh, curators are now busy blogging or practically writing their next catalogs uh, on Instagram. I think it's been a very invigorating process for, for all of us. Much of the art world can be a bit on the back foot about investing and going online and, and doing these things. So I wonder, do you think some of the, the pushback that you received throughout that process and what is, you know, we all know digital video is very expensive. Um, any of these efforts can be very financially taxing, um, as rewarding as they can be. Do you think that any of that uh, reticence is just structural and, and generational, or uh, were there other factors at play? I, th no, I think you put your finger on it. I think there's an element of generational reaction. A cultural institution like the Met has got to be online. You know, that is in part where our audience is. So we had to invest in getting the collections online and, and exploring different ways to, to connect with the audiences. Um, a, a certain amount has been said in the press implying, you know, gross overinvestment. But in fact, you know, much of the funding for those projects came from the Bloomberg Foundation. And when people talk about, you know, the large numbers of people in the digital department, you know, in fact, it's again, it's somewhat misleading because these are, you know, collection data entry people. These are our video programmers. These are people who are running the systems in the galleries. So, you know, many of these people were already existing staff. And I think some rather misleading things have been said in the press. You know, we invested hard. We created a significant presence. I think now going forward, my successor uh, will need to think carefully about priorities. But I think we have a real toehold in this area. And I don't regret. I think we did exactly what needed to happen. I recall one of your major initiatives in coming on as a director and throughout your tenure was also this effort to diversify the audience in terms of um, socioeconomic status, race, uh, you know, regions in which they were coming out of. Was that digital effort, um, you know, did you see that as successful in that effort as well? Or was that diversification effort also more so for people visiting the museum? I think uh, digitization is one of the factors that has contributed to our success in building audience. But I think there are also others. We had a, you know, we have a very active uh, multicultural audience development initiative that organizes different kinds of activities to try and reach out to different demographics, different uh, communities across the city. 
we have uh, a very active education department, uh, which is, sim is doing similar things with school kids and, and teenagers. A hugely successful program, for example, called Teens Take the Met, where literally we bus teenagers in from schools right across the district. And last time we had something like 4,000 kids in the Met one Friday night. And it's just a way to, for them to kind of find that the Met is a safe, comfortable, happy, fun place. Um, so, you know, to normalize it as an activity for them. Uh, we've also done a lot, th a lot of thinking just about audience needs uh, because as we've grown our audience, of course, the, the knowledge that that audience comes to the museum with is very varied. Some people know very little about history, very little about art, uh, very little about museums like, like the Met. And it's not necessarily a comfortable experience for some people. So we, we did an audience engagement study back in 2013, really trying to dig down and understand what people like and what people find alienating. Uh, one, of, one of the most interesting things that actually came out of that study, I mean, almost shocking to me, was that something like 40% of our first-time visitors left feeling somewhat uncomfortable with the Met experience. Were there specific initiatives that came out of that then? Absolutely. In fact, that's, that's what we, we had a somewhat, um, we did a rebranding of the museum that launched in, uh, back in spring 2016. And it was quite controversial at the time. But in fact, it came out of a lot of analysis and understanding uh, that we had a lot of legacy systems, different fonts, different logos, different symbols that for many people were very conflicting. And what we were trying, really what we were trying to do in that rebranding was to get the Met out of the way between the visitor and the artwork. We didn't want them to be, you know, we wanted it to be as simple as possible. So for example, that was why, you know, we had the, we had the old icon was a, a stylized Renaissance M, which, you know, people who know the Met well, they loved it. But what we found was if you go five or six blocks down the street, many people literally didn't know what it meant. And by the time you get out into the country at large, yeah, no, no, no brand recognition at all. And that's why we made the decision to go from that symbol to a word icon, the Met. And that's just one example among a larger branding process of how we were trying to simplify things. Looking back at your entire tenure, both as a curator and then as director of the Met, if you had to name three things that you're perhaps most proud of and then the one that uh, you wish hadn't happened, uh, what, what would those be? Three things I'm most proud of. Um, I guess I went to the Met as a curator because I saw it as a place where I could do really ambitious projects in my field, tapestries. And I will always look back with huge pride on the two very big tapestry exhibitions I organized. And I take great pride that when I became director, I sustained an environment in which the curators could continue to dream big. We've done some you know, very, very ambitious loan shows, 
um, we've continued to invest in the scholarship of our curators, first and foremost. Mm. I'm proud of that. I'm very proud of having expanded the audiences as significantly as we have done. Uh, because I don't, it's not just about numbers. It's the fact, I believe, you know, everyone who comes to the Met, you know, it's ideally is having a meaningful experience. So it's not just metrics for metrics sake. I, I truly believe that we have both physically and online, we are reaching out with our mission and engaging people with art. Um, I'm proud of the way that I think we've gone back to the original vision of an encyclopedic museum and questioned that. You know, there are areas of great strength, you know, especially in the European collections, and we've built there. But we've also uh, brought new focus to areas that have been neglected, like um, Latin American. We have a number of new curators working in the Latin American sphere. We've started collecting there quite uh, interestingly. Native American. Um, we've, I'm just thrilled that uh, Chuck and Valerie Dyker have made the decision to gift their very significant Native American collection to the Met. And then, of course, in modern and contemporary. I really believe that an encyclopedic museum should have uh, a full, meaningful engagement with, with the modern era. And I think that we've brought new energy there. What do I regret? You know, the museum is complex. Uh, the finances are complex. And I wish that, with hindsight, that we had started the financial restructuring at, a, at an earlier point. But then, of course, hindsight's always twenty twenty, And turning an institution like the Met around is it's very much turning the tanker in the ocean. We got going. It took time. And the, the museum is now heading in a very positive direction. So, you know, I've, I've, I feel as I step away, I'm leaving an institution that is in a very strong place, leading institutions across the world. Looking at that wider institutional landscape, what do you think the biggest challenges facing um, your colleagues leading major museums, whether encyclopedic or um, just foundational institutions to various regions' cultural identities are at the moment? Well, you know, looking forward, clearly financing for all of us is a big factor. Uh, we've all, you know, as, as uh, we've all grown, uh, as our ambitions have evolved, uh, we've all become bigger and bigger businesses. The old funding sources that many of us have depended upon are in some cases falling away. Um, wealth is concentrated in new areas. So cultural institutions across the country are having to be quite creative in how they reach out to new donors. But you know, with, that, with that comes new creativity. Um, I think the other thing that's you know, very exciting is that in, as we're ever more connected and the world is shrinking in many respects, I, I think that there's a, we're all becoming part of a tighter network. You know, in the past, the paradigm was that Western institutions just collected from the rest, the rest of the world. Uh, but with new cultural institutions developing in Latin America, in Africa, in Eastern Europe, across Asia, um, the opportunities to collect on the scale that we used to collect 
are diminishing. But I think there are new opportunities in being part of a, an international partnership. So one of, the, one of the things I did with the Met was really push hard on building up relationships with international peers. And lastly, before we go, um, the Times published another article earlier this week looking at possible futures of the Met, talking to, I think, around 20 um, cultural influencers around what they hope to see. So I thought we could go through four or five of those at, at relatively rapid pace to get a little reality check from uh, the, the man who's had to, I guess, make these calls <laughs> for the past decade. Uh, does, that sound, does that sound good on your end? Sure. All right. So first up from Paul D. Miller, a.k.a. DJ Spooky, who writes that the average person looks at a painting for six seconds, and uh, he was recalling the Pokemon Go phase last summer where uh, you had kids gathering around to try to catch them all, and they weren't there. He says they weren't there for six seconds, they were there for minutes. Uh, and he's wondering what museums could do with augmented reality to keep people looking at the objects before them. Well, I, I love the idea of using digital to kind of engage people, especially younger audiences. Uh, we've recently put all of our uh, images of all of our collections out on open access. You know, I'd love people to be creating video games, exploratory tours of the Met on, you know, f for, for themselves and for the audiences they're engaging with. But yeah, I'm all of, you know, I'd love the Met to be an, exp an exploratory kind of innov innovative center uh, in the digital realm. Simon Dunan writes, if the Met could expand into Central Park with an outdoor sculpture garden, it could truly become a destination. We've had discussions with the park over the years about the possibility of putting sculptures in the park. And I think the longstanding approach is that, in fact, you know, it's, it, the plants and the trees are the sculptures in the park. You know, maybe future generations will have a different take on that balance. The restaurateur Bill Telepan writes, uh, my first suggestion is get a good food program in there, whether it's fancy high-end place or not. He's even has gone, gone as far to say that he will do it if the Met would <laughs> ask him. <laughs> well, there's a pretty good restaurant at the moment uh, called the Members Dining Room, which is actually now open to all members of the public. And, you know, we're, we're constantly looking at how we can improve the food offerings across the museum. The artist Judith Bernstein asks uh, whether there could be a more conscious effort to feature more art by women and to take more chances. Uh, she says they shouldn't wait until someone has been around for 20 years. Well, all for future uh, leadership. Um, Sheena Wagstaff has brought in a very active program relating to women artists. Just in the last year, we've had Cornelia Parker on the roof. We've had Lisha Pape, Marissa Mertz, uh, Nazreen Mohammadi. So I think that those who want to see more art by women um, are going to be well served by that program. And finally, uh, from Hank Willis Thomas, actually apropos to, to what we were just talking about, uh, he asks whether, due to museums' kind of key place in, in setting a, a narrative around a particular region, um, he was wondering why Egypt is placed outside of the rest of the African collections. Um, and he says, I think Egypt's in Africa. If the Met's trying to be objective, objectively, Egypt should be closer to Africa. <laughs> well, maybe you can do that in, in a virtual reality museum. <laughs> I mean, the, you know, the museum uh, has evolved over the years uh, in response to opportunities in the marketplace, uh, to the leadership within the museum, and to the generosity of different donors. And we're always, you know, recalibrating 
to one extent or another, but physically to take entire collections from one quarter of the museum to another would be hugely expensive. So, but who knows, you know, one master plan was completed on my watch. We've laid the foundations for a new master plan. So, you know, it's exciting to think what is going to happen in the Met's next 50 years. Well, thank you so much for your time, Tom, and and for coming over to Artsy. And uh, we look forward to to hearing about what you get up to next in in the coming years. Thank you. Real pleasure. Our producer this week, as always, editorial associate Abigail Kane. The theme music is by Broke for Free. I'll be back next week. See you then.